Well, good afternoon again. Um, if you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Acts, chapter 8. I turned myself on. Um, Acts chapter 8, which if you're paying close attention, is the same text we had last week. But this is a uh, subset of what we looked at. Um, last week we talked about how the gospel was going to uh, the Samaritans, which was a new thing that overcame a lot of barriers and prejudices for people in the early Christian church. Today we're going to look, look and talk about magic. Uh, because we've got the story of Simon the Sorcerer uh, here. In this passage. Um, so, talking about magic, I'll start with a golf illustration. The uh, heard someone say this week they got a really bad bounce on a ball that bounced into a bunker. And they said, if I'm going to get that kind of bounce, what's the point of even going to church? <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was pretty good. You know, um, I don't say this just to give you more reasons to despise golfers. Uh, I'm sure you have plenty. But... Uh, I say it because it's a pretty common way of thinking about God and thinking about magic. That uh, somehow in our dealings with God, what we really are doing is trying to exercise the right kind of magic to get God to do what we want Him to do. Um, and magic is a very different kind of approach to religion and approach to God than what we get in the Bible. Uh, because we're told to expect a relationship of love and trust with God through Jesus Christ in the Bible, not some sort of impersonal, transactional relationship with God where we try to move him off of his reluctance, uh, which is the essence of magic, trying to constrain God to do what we want him to do rather than living in a relationship of trust with him. So that'll bring us to the strange case of Simon the Magician, whom uh, Philip and then Peter and John met when they went to Samaria. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to you and that uh, you would draw us more deeply into a real relationship with you instead of uh, some sort of uh, superstitious and magical approach to knowing you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me just, I'm not coming through the system, so I'm going to, I can use this one. Oh, clever. Try. okay. I'm not one of those walking around preachers anyway. So let's read together beginning of verse 9 of Acts chapter 8. It says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, probably the most uh, popular of the Thousand and One Night stories is Aladdin and his lamp. Right? And I'm sure that in some kind of social setting, when the conversation was dragging, someone raised the question, what would you do with three wishes if you had three wishes? Right? Aladdin's lamp, the genie that comes forward, who is bound to do the bidding of the person who owns the lamp. Right? Genie doesn't have any say in this. Uh, when Disney got a hold of it, you were drawn into a lot of sympathy for the poor genie who was bound to do the bidding of whoever got the lamp. But that's not a very unusual idea about religion, is that we do what we do so that God will be bound to do our bidding in the world. And if we do our religion right, if we say things the way we're supposed to say and behave the way we're supposed to behave, then we can bind God to do our bidding. And uh, that's magic. In other words, right? Getting God to do our bidding, having influence over God so that he has to do what we want. Uh, this is magic. It's not Christian faith. And all through the scripture, the uh, God's people were warned against magic. There was a very stark one in our Old Testament reading today, right, about any kind of fortune telling and divination and the other things that we do magically to try to bind God to do our bidding. And uh, in the New Testament, this early church, Simon the Magician is the object lesson. They're taught that magic is not the same thing as Christian faith. They're very different, and we're bound to avoid magical thinking when we think about our relationship with God. Now, um, we're not bound to avoid supernatural thinking. The cure for uh, magical thinking isn't that we become naturalists and materialists who attribute everything to some sort of naturally occurring cause. I mean, this passage, chapter 8 in Acts, where we're taught through Simon not to hold on to magic in our relationship with God, has uh, miraculous healings in it. It has exorcism of demons from people in it. And it has, I don't know what to call it, a souped-up version of astral projection in it later in the, in the passage where Philip gets transported somewhere seemingly instantly teleported or something it's not the argument isn't uh, the way you stay out of the ditch on this side of the road of magical thinking is that you go over to the ditch on the other side of the road of naturalism materialism um, christian faith is supernaturalistic but it's not magical and so we're not going to talk about the naturalism ditch today um, just don't go in that one uh, we're going to talk about the magic ditch today and the problems that come up from that and so, uh, two things with it. One uh, that we're warned against is magical faith, and the other is magician ministers. So, no magical faith, no magician ministers. First, magical faith. All right, magic is an approach to real religion where you bind God to do your bidding. You try to bind God to do your bidding, where he has to do what you want him to do. And in the Bible, relationship with God is love and trust. Relationship with a personal God 
who is wise and good. So in uh, the preaching of Philip, you see in verse 12 that he tells them the good news about the kingdom of God and uh, the name of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give them a formula for uh, getting God to do what they want him to do, to bless them and be kind to them and that kind of thing. He tells them the good news about a relationship with God that can be restored through Jesus Christ. And how God is restoring everything that's broken in the world that broke because of our war with God. It's news. It's not a formula. It's not an approach to religion that you can use to get God to do your bidding. And when he criticizes Simon later for trying to buy the gift of God, he says just that. It's the gift of God. It's not something you can control or buy. It's God's to give. It's not yours to coerce God to give you uh, because he's not reluctant. You're, you're acting as if God were impersonal or reluctant, or like he hates you, that he's capricious, that he's unwise in the way that he distributes his gifts, and that you've got to somehow force his hand and fix all those problems in God through magic. And instead of loving God, it's controlling God and using God to get what you want. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, because we're scared of life in this world, and we're pretty helpless in the face of most things that terrify us in this world. Um, pretty much out of control of most things we care about in this world. I mean, that's why people go see psychics, isn't it? You know, unless it's just, you know, for fun on a lark or something. Uh, people who go to psychics with serious look on their face go because they're scared and they're out of control. I had a friend who buried a statue of St. Joseph upside down in the front yard uh, in order to do what? Do you know why you bury a statue of St. Joseph upside down in the front yard? Sell your house, right? Patron saint of real estate, I guess. I don't know. But um, serious person that makes uh, her way well in the world buried a statue of a saint upside down in her yard so her house would sell. Right? People do this because they're... The uncertainty is a problem for us. We're out of control. What use is a relic in religion? What does a relic do for you? Besides make you suspicious. I don't know if that's really a relic. I can't hear you. Well, that's a, I think that's a more nuanced view. But a relic is supposed to be some kind of a, a thin place between you and God. right? Somehow, if you can get around a relic then it makes your connection with God and his likelihood of blessing you greater because you're around a relic. Um, Old Testament, when they do sacrifices, they had to burn the entrails of the animals to keep them from trying to read their fortunes in them. Right? Uh, so they wouldn't practice divination by looking at the guts of the animals. Uh, God made them burn them because they knew they'd be tempted to because reading tea leaves and uh, fortunes in the bottom of coffee cups and whatnot uh, is a pretty common temptation for people. Uh, there's a lot that goes around in the Christian church that says if you make sure that you always say things exactly the right way in exactly the right formula when you talk to or about God and your circumstances, that you can force God to make you well or you can force God to make you rich, but you have to say it right. Always, right? It has to be a positive confession. Uh, but if you say it right, it's a mind over matter, magical device to get God to do your bidding. You can bind God to do your bidding like a genie if you say things right. And uh, 
those are things that tend to be problems of other people. Um, but we have magic problems too, right? And they show up when you pray, I think. You know, some of your assumptions sort of rise to the surface un- unrestricted when you pray. I heard someone say one time, I've given up on praying because I can't figure out how it works. You hear that? I can't figure out how it works. That's magical thinking, right? how it works. Uh, Charles Schultz had a cartoon where Linus was praying like this. And he said, I'm just seeing that if I, if I point my hands down when I pray, if I get the opposite of what I ask for. <laughs> right? yeah. Superstitious about praying. But we very often bargain with God when we pray. Right? We bargain with God as if he were reluctant, as if we were trying somehow to bind him to do our bidding. We bargain with him. Mel Brooks had a movie years and years and years ago called High Anxiety, starring Burt Reynolds, if that tells you how long ago it was, and Dom DeLuise. But Reynolds was a mental patient and had decided to end it all and swam out as far as he could into the Pacific Ocean and then had a change of heart <laughs> and decided that he wanted to live. And so what did he do? He started praying and bargaining with God. Look, God, if you just get me back to the shore, I promise, I'll give you 50% of everything I make from here on out. And so he starts swimming back to the shore and doesn't think he's going to make it. And gets a little closer and says, Lord, if you just help me make it this last distance, I promise I'm going to give you 25% of everything I make for the rest of my life. And, you know, he gets a couple of hundred yards in. And says, well, I promise I'm going to give you 10% of all that I make from here on out of my life until he gets to the shore. It's bargaining prayer. As if you're dealing with God who doesn't want to help you or bless you or is unwise and you're trying to get him to do a wise thing that he doesn't otherwise want to do or these capricious or something magical that isn't true about God. We bargain. Now, it's a relationship with God. Sometimes we wrestle with God in prayer, argue with God, complain to God. But it's relational stuff. It's not bargaining stuff. It's not trying to get God in your debt so that he'll do what you want him to do. That's not what prayer is for a Christian. Other thing we do, even as good, you know, angry Protestants is we try to get holy people to pray for us, right? If you can get the holy person to pray for you, then maybe God is bound to do their bidding, even if he's not bound to do mine. And so if they pray for me, maybe he'll overcome his reluctance and help me. It's good to ask people to pray for you. I mean, in the Christian church, we're told if we're sick to ask the elders to come and pray for us, but not because... uh, God is bound to them more than he is to you, uh, but because the relationships in the body of Christ are supposed to work that way. We're supposed to care about each other and take care of each other. When the elders come, they're supposed to take oil and put it on your head because oil is magical and it makes God do what you ask him to do, right? No. The oil is a reminder that healing is a gift of God, and if he decides to heal you, you'll get healed, and if he doesn't, you won't. It's a reminder that it's God's action we're asking for, not our own. We're not forcing his hand or controlling him because we can't. And you may have been in Christian circles before where you were told that to ask God to do his will, whatever it is in a circumstance, is to show a lack of faith. Right? If you say, uh, not my will, but thy will be done like Jesus did, (laughs) that somehow you don't have enough faith. And if you, if you evidence any kind of doubt like that, like maybe you don't know what the will of the holy and wise God is, that God won't do what you want him to do. So you can never say something like, thy will be done. That would be bad. 
right? It's the wrong abracadabra in the magic of prayer to get God to do what you want him to do. And all these things are ways that we tend to be magical, but that's not what prayer is. Prayer is an appeal to your Father who loves you, who is wise, who's not angry with you anymore because of what Jesus has done for you, and so he's not being withholding against you. He's just smarter than you are and doesn't often think that you're right about what you need. Or is that just me? He's never there for us to control or use. We don't control God or use God. That's magic. And it's supernatural when God answers our prayers, but it's not magical when he answers our prayers. It's because out of his love and wisdom, he decides uh, to do what we've asked him to do. Just the same reasons he decides not to do what we ask him to do. So the good news Philip came to preach was not that God is capricious and controllable. It's that God is reconciled to you through Jesus Christ and you can have a relationship with him now. So don't treat him like a genie. Don't be magical in your faith. Uh, Peter said to Simon when he was being magical, wanting to buy the gift of God, he said, there's poison at the root of what you're saying. Your heart's not right. And that kind of leads us to Simon in the second part of this, which is not only are we not supposed to have magical faith, we're not supposed to have magician ministers. And Simon wanted to be a magician minister or a shaman, they call it in some places, a shaman who is someone who has the power to influence the gods. They have the power to influence the gods, and that gives them power over other people. I'm close to God. I am the guru. I am the one who can get things done with God, so you go through me. And Simon was used to that kind of system because that was his job. He was a magician, not an illusionist, but a dark arts kind of magician, right? Whether he was a charlatan or whether he was in touch with demonic things, we don't know. It doesn't say. Could it be a little of both? But that was his job, and he made a name for himself with it. It says everybody thought he was, like, super connected to God, who was great, they said. And and, uh, so he was a big deal, But he runs into the real deal when Philip comes and preaches and then Peter and John come and lay their hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit. He's like, that's that's better than what I've been doing. And if I could do that, I could make even more of a name for myself. I could be an even greater person. And so he goes like a magician would now and tries to buy the trick from Peter and John. And that doesn't go well. But here he is. He's the amazer. Everyone was amazed by him, it says, in Samaria. And then when he sees what happens with Philip, he's amazed. The amazer becomes amazed. But he wants the power to dispense God's gifts at will. The power to dispense God's gifts at will. I want to be the conduit who can, by my choosing and acting, distribute God's gifts to people as I decide to. I want that power. Because it looks like that was, that's what Peter and John have. He was very mistaken about that. They didn't have that power. And uh, he couldn't buy it from them. But that's what he wanted. The power to dispense God's gifts at will. And uh, for him to make a name for himself by doing that. But what he was told is that God is uncontrollable. That nobody has the power over God's gifts to distribute them at will. God has the power to distribute his gifts as he will, and no one else does. It's funny, he didn't, uh, he didn't ask to preach like Philip. He asked to do 
the magic, like Peter. I'm going to lay my hands on people and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. We don't even know what the manifestation was, but it was something dramatic. It was tongues in Acts 2. It probably was here too. But it was very impressive to him. He wanted those miracles. And, and Peter said, oh, sweetie, that's, that's not how we do things here. Let me explain it to you. No, he said, he said, to hell with you and your money. That's what he said. It's not, it's not what nice apostles are supposed to say. But that's exactly what he told the guy. You and your money. He said, this is all gift. This isn't something you can buy. This isn't something you can dispense at your own pleasure, at your own will. Presbyterians say it this way. It sounds more lawyerly. Church power is declarative power. That means we don't have power ourselves to distribute God's gifts. Our power comes from declaring what God has promised and said in His Word. That's what ministers have. That's the power they have. It's not power to dispense God's gifts according to our desires and will. Um, it's the power to declare what God has said. So when we have an assurance of pardon at church, and I say to you, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, it's not because I'm the holy man who can forgive sins. It's because we just read a promise of the gospel from the Bible, and I'm saying on the basis of this, if your faith is in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's an authorization to stand here and do that that comes from God, but I don't have any control over his gifts. I doubt that you thought I did. But we have declarative power, not the power to distribute gifts as we wish. So pity your minister and ministers because I have a job where everything I'm supposed to accomplish and everything by which I am evaluated is completely out of my control. Right? Everything I'm supposed to make happen and see happen, everything I'm called to do, everything people give money so I can go do and accomplish is completely out of my control. So, you know, it's not easy being me. <laughs> you know, but this is what ministers are asked to do. They're asked to serve in a situation where they don't have any control over what happens. We treat them like they do. The ministers themselves, trust me, believe that we have control over what we're trying to see happen. We want to see God's work go forward. We want to see people become Christians. We want to see them grow as Christians. We want to see them thrive. So we're tempted constantly to manipulate people. Because we can't make God's work happen in somebody's life. We try to force it. Right? I may have, you know, let's play the piano behind my prayer, and that might stir people up, right? I'll try anything. You should see the books I have at my house about how to plant a church, you know? And that's not including the ones I've already thrown away. Um, anything that you can do, manipulation by guilt and shame, absolutely. You know, I'm tempted to all of that because I want to see results in something I can't force or make happen. And every minister is like that. Every Christian that tries to be involved in God's work is like that. Um, I want to bottle success. Go around and see the best practices of the people who seem to be thriving in God's work and copy it. That's why ministers are tempted to plagiarize sermons. Right? Because this worked somewhere else and I want it to work here. But you can't bottle God's gifts. You can't reproduce God's gifts through some sort of technique or skill. You can't market the gospel. I wish you could. I mean, I got stickers, I got magnets, I got bookmarks. What else you want, right? Um, but 
you can't you can't market the gospel because it's not a commodity. You can't sell it to anybody. Right? Otherwise, I would. I would love to try. But the gospel is never for sale. God's gifts are not uh, controllable that way. Only he controls what he does in your life and your friends' lives. Um, that's why uh, you remember the stories from the Middle Ages about Johann Tetzel and his indulgences. Uh, he say, basically, you give money to the church, you can buy your way or a friend's way out of purgatory. And um, that is, I can sell you the mercy of God, which is magician thinking, or as the church calls it after Acts 8, simony, simony, selling the gift of God, pretending that we have God's mercy under our control. It's not true. There are no magician ministers because this isn't a magical faith. No magician ministers. Jesus is not controllable that way. And that's why in a church that's healthy and right, there's only one star in the church, and that's Jesus. Right? That's why if you think through church history, you couldn't name ten awesome ministers, probably. Because it's not a star-based religion. It's a Jesus-based religion. That's the way it's supposed to be. So... We're called, through the horrifying and terrifying example of Simon, to abandon magic. We don't know if he did or not. Uh, my wife is nice and optimistic and thinks that Simon repented. I don't think he repented, but, you know, that's the way I look at the world. But the thing is, you don't, you don't need a genie because you have a Savior. You don't need a genie. you got a Savior. A Savior to whom you can say, this is what's going on with me. I love you. I trust you. You just do whatever you think is best for me in this situation.